Welcome to the Royal Christian Centre Sermon Podcast. Today, we're going to do two remaining things. We're going to listen together to some stuff from the Word of God. And then we're going to share what we call communion or the Lord's table together. And I believe the two will very much flow one into the other today. Because when we come to share communion, it's a recognition of something that Jesus has done for us by design, by God's design. And it's our response to what he has done for us. It's an opportunity to offer our hearts. And as we were worshiping today, I was thinking about that phrase, offering your heart, because it is quite a weird thing to say, isn't it? But I'm hoping that the side effect of the word that we're looking at today will be very much to look at what, what do I do? How do I do it when it comes to offering my heart to God and what does that mean? We're continuing with our, our series of looking at what was known as the Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't know if Pastor Greg carefully and wisely selected the relevant commandment to the relevant member of the team. If he has... It's a little bit alarming because uh, we're looking at thou shalt not commit murder. So it's a kind of, uh, could be relevant, I don't know. Uh, There there will be some common things that you'll notice because I've found as I'm listening to Pastor Greg speak from the other commandments, I think, yeah, you can see the underlying thread of what God is getting at with giving people these instructions and these guidelines to live by because we keep saying it but God loves people he loves people by themselves he loves people in groups he loves people in towns in cities in families God loves people because that's why he made them and so God wants our lives to go well he doesn't want us to have horrible miserable lives so that we can one day go to heaven that will happen but God would love us to have fulfilled happy lives as well the best we can it's never God's plan that things would go badly things going badly is the side effect of people doing things other than God's plan I want to start with a scripture it's the same scripture I'm going to finish with Leviticus 26 verse 12 I've got loads of scriptures because I know that you all like that kind of thing Uh, but they're all quite short I know you like that kind of thing as well so uh Leviticus 26, 12, God speaking. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I love that. That is God almighty, the maker of heaven and earth saying, I am going to walk amongst you. That's always been his plan. I'm going to grab you by the hand. I'm going to be your God and you are my people. And this is something we all need to grab hold of because it doesn't push any of us to the outside. The actual scripture reference for today's sermon title is Exodus 20, 13. Thou shalt not kill, or you must not murder, which, depending on which translation you want to look at, basically this sounds the same thing. Uh, I've got three military illustrations, one joke, one self-deprecating illustration, just so you can tell where you are up to in the sermon. You know they think, oh yeah, we're getting to the end now, he's used all three, so you know where you are, and just you can measure that. Uh, do the joke first. It's not my joke. 
Uh, I'm saying that because it's really bad and I don't want to be blamed for it. One day there was an inflatable boy. He lived in an inflatable town, in an inflatable house, an inflatable street. He went to an inflatable school. And he was in school and he was getting really fed up with school. He didn't like school. He got angry. It wasn't a rational anger, it was just anger. And one day he got so angry, he got a pin out of his pocket and he popped his teacher. And he ran away and the headmaster chased after him. He was getting, he, was, he didn't know, he was just so angry. He popped his school. The headmaster caught out of him, he popped his headmaster. He got home, his mum and dad were there, didn't know what had happened. Police knocked on the door, he thought, oh no, I'm in trouble. His mum and dad said, the police are at the door, what have we done? He popped his mum and dad. He looked outside, there were SWAT teams, inflatable SWAT teams. I'm cornered, I've got nowhere to go. He just looked at the pin in his hand and popped himself. An hour later, it's not a true story by the way, just make it a joke. An hour later he woke up in hospital, he'd been patched up. The hospital, the headmaster was in the bed next to him, shaking his head. I'm very disappointed with you, he said. You've let me down, you've let the school down, you've let your family down, and most of all, you've let yourself down. Not my joke, just passing it on. Just let Carla recover, then I'll carry on with the Ten Commandments. <laughs> the Ten Commandments were, were given by God with a, a purpose in mind. You could say, in a way, it, it was kind of a, a damage limitation exercise. Sometimes people read stuff in the Bible and say, oh, God allowed this, or God allowed that. You know, it was never God's will. It wasn't God's idea that people should do all the things that they're told not to do in the Ten Commandments. The commandments and the rules and the laws that God put in the Bible aren't because God said, this is what I want to be in the world. It's because God said, this is what I don't want to be in the world, but it's going to come into the world. So therefore, I'm going to put things in place that help people to manage what is going to go wrong. In the five books of Moses, there's 14 different verses that gave people instructions about what to do when murder had taken place. Things to do with providing cities of refuge as someone killed accidentally. A whole list of different things because God knew these things were going to happen. The Ten Commandments are there to enable people to manage the things that were going to surely go wrong. Because something is listed in the Ten Commandments as a thou shalt not, we know it's wrong. But we also then have the beginning of the basis, God's way, to try and address the consequences of wrongness. Because when a sin is committed, when someone is killed, or any of the other things that are listed, it doesn't just affect that person, but it affects all of society and all around it. Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 to 11. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cried out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and will be driven from the ground which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The first murder, sadly, far from the last murder. And you can see that progression of resentment, anger, mulling over that resentment and anger, and eventually the fruit of that was the act of murder. It seems a huge gulf, but as we're going to see, there's sometimes a short distance between what is in the heart and what is lived out in our lives. So the first point to make from this commandment, thou shalt not murder, is that killing is is never good. It's never a good thing. Three reasons why killing is never good not never good that was a double negative wasn't it why killing is never good first of all man is created in God's image by man I just want to clarify I do mean mankind men and women humans just making it absolutely clear I don't want to get into other subjects that are going to lead to me being pulled down from the platform by angry people People are made in the image of God. There's something about every single human being that reflects something of God. God put something of him in you and in every single human being. So therefore, harming, killing a human being is an affront to something, someone that God has made. That's the first reason that killing is is, is always wrong. Secondly, most important reason, I guess, God says it's wrong. And a little side point, but right and wrong doesn't come from us. We don't make up right and wrong. I think Greg, Pastor Greg has touched on this a couple of times. We don't actually invent the rules. We discover the rules that God has made. So if God says it's wrong to kill, that is as it is because God made everything. He's a creator of all things. So that's, that's the second reason. The third reason is that killing always has lasting, terrible effects. Not just obviously on the person who is killed in the case of Cain and Abel, but on the cases of all those affected around it. A couple of years back I heard a story. Uh, I was speaking to a company sergeant major who was just retiring and had a few drinks. It was Christmas and it was his last night, so kind of understandable. And he told me this story. The the reason I'm telling this story is partly because 
I didn't hear this story from the person it happened to. The person telling me this story was the man who counseled the person in the story afterwards because of the effect it had on them. And it relates back to Iraq when uh, the regiment was in, uh, I think it was Basra, and they were driving along in a vehicle. As they were going along in a vehicle in a convoy, uh, an insurgent stepped out from an alleyway with an RPG on his shoulder, holding a child. Top Gunner saw the, uh, the person ahead, and in that instant had to make a decision, do I shoot or not shoot? Knowing full well that if he shot, he would save all the occupants of the vehicle that he was in, but he would kill both the person with the grenade launcher and the child. He also, I guess, would have, in that split second, have to calculate the fact that this person was so close to the vehicle that they were going to die anyway because if he successfully fired his weapon, they would blow up, they're right next to it. So in that second, he had to make that decision and he fired and took the shot. And afterwards, he was doing the report that you have to do in such contacts. And he was 21 years old and absolutely devastated because of what he'd done. And everyone said, you had no choice. You've done the right thing. In that instance, that was all you could do. You saved the lives of 12 people. But that doesn't change the impact on doing such a thing to the person who does it. No matter how much he tells himself, I did the right thing, I had no choice. In your mind, you still got that. I've killed. Because killing is never right. It's surprising that God attaches so much more value to our lives than we attach to our lives. Sometimes we, we see things in the news and you hear the phrase, life is cheap here or life is cheap there. And that kind of seems true. But actually, humanity, we don't attach as much value to us as God does. We don't extend ourselves for each other to the same extent that God did. There's a number of real big social dilemmas in our society that kind of reflect this issue of is it right? Is it acceptable? Is it justifiable to, to kill? One is the, the war situation. You often hear the argument, is there such a thing as a just war? And sometimes people would say, oh, it was okay, you know, the Second World War was an understandable war, but I'm not really so sure about the war in Iraq or any other war that you're not so clear cut on. Very often, soldiers in a battle situation are given very strict guidelines about when you can fire and when you can't fire. Did the person you were firing at have a weapon? All these sort of things come, come into play. I guess motivation is a big thing in those sort of settings. settings. Pastor Greg quoted from uh, The Princess Bride. Now, I realise that's quite a macho kind of film, but I, I can't quote from films at level. I, I'm going <laughs> to... I honestly have not seen The Princess Bride. It could be. I'm not saying I'm, I'm joking, but it could be a very macho film. 
I noticed when Pastor Greg asked people and said, has anyone seen the Princess Bride? Very few people put their hands up, but while he's not here, so were, were there really more people who saw it than Greg actually discovered? Because I want to tell him and put his mind at rest, really. Has anyone seen the, the Princess Bride film? Really? That's all right, and I didn't feel so bad now because I haven't seen it either. That's good, right. I'm going to use an illustration from a different film in that case. <laughs> Band of Brothers, anyone seen Band of Brothers when it came out about 10 years ago? I didn't see it at the time, just watched it recently, and there was a really dramatic scene towards the end, right at the last episode. To give it a bit of context. It's getting to right to the end of the war. They've been through 10 episodes. It's a really long war. Uh, and they're about to cross the river over into Germany. And they're sent over on a raid to capture a prisoner to find out what's going on the other side of the river. So they go across the river in boats. They capture this prisoner, but one person gets killed in the, the, the raid. And they're all kind of like, you know, we're one day away, two days away from the end of the war. This person's been killed. And it really makes them angry. And they've captured this prisoner. And this man was really, really angry. And he picks up his gun and he's about to shoot the prisoner that they've captured out of anger. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking that kind of sums up how we would understand the difference between just and unjust murder and killing in that situation. That when they were killing people before, that was okay because they were fighting and it was a war, but now they've got this man and he's tied up and he's just going to, that can't be right, can it? But actually... Just or unjust, killing still always has a huge, permanent, long-lasting effect on those who do it as well as those who are affected by it. Two other issues that we come across as Christians and we find ourselves having to address that revolve around the justifiableness of killing. In 2011, I think there are more recent figures than that, but it's enough to give us an understanding. In 2011, there were 189,931 abortions carried out in, in Britain. That's a lot. There's two things we need to understand about how common abortion is. One is that we need to be mindful of the fact that because it is so widespread every one of us will know people directly affected so we need to make sure that whatever we're saying or whatever our explanation or understanding of this issue is we have to be sensitive and compassionate to people who have gone through a termination because they will have been affected by that and they need always support and understanding and they need God's healing so that's one thing to say whatever opinions are we need to have that perspective. But the other thing that it shows us, not about individuals, but about society, is that we do not value life the same way that God values life, going back to what I was saying before. Because every one of those souls is precious to God. But sometimes, in some circumstances, it becomes a matter of convenience. And realise that there are more traumatic circumstances and there are very, very difficult situations that people face. But sadly, the majority of the time, it becomes an issue of 
convenience, that means that sometimes life isn't always valued as God would value it. Similarly, the issues around euthanasia, that as medical science advances and as doctors get better and more proficient, suddenly we have more choices than we used to have. People live a lot longer than they used to live. And conditions that affected relatively few people now affect many. People are faced with the terrible dilemma of, I know what's going to happen to me, and I don't want to go down that route. I don't want to go through that suffering. So I want someone to end it for me if I'm not able to do it myself. And all the time you can see with great sympathy why someone would go through such an agonizing decision. But at the same time, when we value life as so precious because it contains something of God, and what's the saying, where there's life, there's hope, it gives us a moral dilemma. All of those areas, all those issues, we're aware of them, they're big issues, and sometimes we're affected personally and directly. But Jesus takes what are issues, what are theory, and he brings it right down to heart level. I'm guessing that most of us are never going to face the life or death decision of whether I should kill or not kill. But when Jesus was talking with his disciples, he brought up something that does affect every single one of us. And he said, shares the same root problem as the problem of killing or not killing. Have a quick look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you the truth, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And jumping ahead to verse 19 of chapter 15. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. In our hearts, we, we carry stuff. We carry the, the root of our character, if you like. When we're squeezed, what we are comes out. When we're under pressure, who we really are is kind of revealed. Uh, I was on night exercise once and getting ready in the morning and it was about half four-ish and it was still dark and they always, NCOs always make you shave and wash in the morning, get, do everything, even if you're in, living in a ditch. So in the dark, I was getting ready, uh, I reached in and it felt like a tube of toothpaste. It was the right shape, it had a lid on. It was soft like a, tooth, uh, a tube of toothpaste. I opened the lid, I got my toothbrush, I squeezed out onto it, I put it in my mouth and began to brush my teeth, and I discovered it was a tube of Savlon antiseptic cream. <laughs> There's no good reason to brush your teeth that I've discovered with Savlon antiseptic cream. 
It's not minty fresh. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you look like. When you're squeezed, it's what comes out that shows who you are. I want to borrow some uh, volunteers. I can see three volunteers there. (laughs) That'll be three. Tim, were you laughing then? That means you volunteered as well then. You come up. I I was going to be gender equal, but I I won't do that now. On on stage, on stage. Yep, yep, we need four together. I could do it with more, but we've got limited space. So just stand there for now, okay? Actually, you, you you very much look the part, all four of you. My favorite bit of training that I've done so far is what's called obular, operating in a built-up area. It's where you do house clearance, building clearance, and you operate as an infantry section. And I learned what it was not to be in a section where you're spread out, but to be in what's called a stack. I think it's an American term. I think only the Americans could discover how to use military terms based on pancakes. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds like when I hear the word stack, I just think of pancakes. But we we were taught to operate in a stack. And the idea is, when you're going through buildings, it's busy, there's lots going on, there's gonna be people in different rooms, you haven't got much space, it's gonna be noisy and dusty, so communication is quite difficult. So whereas normally you're taught you spread out, you keep your spacings, all that kind of thing, when you're stacking, it's all very different. There's normally a section or two. So there's normally eight or 16, but I'm just going to do it with four because it gets too complicated otherwise. So if, Tim, you're at the back, so you can go just there. Just turn, all turn sideways on and prepare to be manhandled. Right. You're going in first, okay? Right. Expendable, right. Uh, get a bit closer, a bit closer. Get a bit closer. Now I want you to... You're going like you've got your rifle in your right hand. It's only imaginary. So put your hand like that. Lean forward a little bit. Okay. <laughs> this is what you look like, pretty much. But you need to be a little bit closer. You need to be touching. Closer. Yeah. That close. You've noticed now... Well, your gun's around this side. It only works right-handed. Yeah. Yeah. No good. If, if you're left-handed, you fire right-handed. The, the A2 only works right-handed. This is your army now, just do what you're told. <laughs> now, you'll notice several things about this. One, you can't fit anyone in between them, can you? If somebody goes the wrong way and goes into the wrong room, everyone else will know about it, mainly because they'll probably fall over them. But you're going along, you've entered a house, you've come in through the front door. There's a another side door just here number two man here he's got the grenade not yet (laughs) he picks up the grenade he pulls out the pin out of the grenade he taps the grenade on the helmet of the man in front the man in front looks round and he shows him the grenade then he throws the grenade into the room not you, him All of that, you get the idea, you have to be close to do all that. 
if something unexpected happens, you can respond because you're close enough to respond. Communication is by shouting in the ear of the man next to you or tapping him on the head or on the shoulder or grabbing hold of him and saying, go this way. What happens when you get to that first room? Tim goes in first because the grenade's already been thrown in. He goes left. You go right. The next two come along. Go past that doorway. Wait just there. The room's clear because everything's great. You come back on, join on the back of the stack. Tim stays in there now. That's his room. You're, you're in the room, guarding the room, Tim. And then you work your way through the house like that. At all times, you're close like a little caterpillar. One other thing I forgot to mention, this is the funniest thing. Because you're so close together, when you walk, you have to shuffle. This is no, there's no lesson in this, it just makes me laugh. Because we'll get really, really close, and now walk. You have to shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. That is what it looks like. Thank you very much, you can return to your seats. Keep all that image, that little shuffling caterpillar of pancakes. When Jesus explained to people that it's not just the extreme, not just the acts of murder and violence, but actually what in, is in your heart that attracts God's judgment and God's attention, his disciples once again were reminded, hang on, we've got a ways to go yet. The way that we live needs to reflect our new found enthusiasm to follow Jesus. It's not enough just to say, oh yeah, we're Jesus' disciples because we spend a lot of time with him, we eat with him, we walk around with him. They were starting to get the fact that actually we've got to live like him as well. And they were starting to understand that like being squeezed, if you're Savlon rather than toothpaste, when that squeezing happens, it's going to become obvious that you're the wrong thing to put in somebody's mouth. When they were squeezed, anger sometimes came out, or the whole list of other things. So they had to think to themselves, right, our hearts need to be like the heart of Jesus, and that we can only do with his help. As a result of this teaching of Jesus, the epistles, which are the letters that the apostles wrote, I always like that, because you know, there's a lot of long theological words I don't really know what they mean. When, when I did my little bit of study at Bible college, I had to have a dictionary to tell me what the words in the dictionary meant. That's, that's what, what was going on. A lot of theological words. Are, but epistles and apostles always makes me laugh because it sounds a bit like a tongue, tongue twister. But the epistles were the letters written by the apostles. Okay, And if you look at the epistles or these letters, the purpose of them, whether they were written to churches or individuals, was to build up and encourage and train and teach mission-focused communities of believers to do God's will. That's what they were for. They were to help people be stronger, to help people be more full of joy, to help people grow, to help people have hearts that were right, to help people be toothpaste, not Savlon. Ephesians 4.26, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. James 1.20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires.
all of that refers to what needs to happen, what needs to be in our lives for us to actually be disciples of Jesus. I'm going to finish with just a little bit of a reference back to the situation with Cain. And four pointers, that's five, but that's four, four pointers of dealing with anger. Does anybody ever get angry or have an issue with anger or anger issues? Everyone does at some point. I was going to do a little illustration. I was going to give you a list of names and then say, put your hand up when, they, when I mention someone that makes you angry. And I realized that all the names were just like a whole list. It was like uh, Nicola Sturgeon. It was all Teresa. It was all like basically politicians. I thought, that's, that's a bit negative. I'm not going to do that. It was funny, but I'm not going to do it. All of us actually get angered or annoyed or irritated by things. We need to deal with it and we need to respond in a way that improves the condition of our hearts instead of allowing our heart to be more hardened or weaker. The first thing we need to do when we're dealing with anger is reflect. That means taking that mental step back and trying to analyze what's going on inside ourselves. A little bit of introspection, a little bit of thinking isn't always a bad thing. When Cain started to become angry, God challenged him and said, why are you so downcast? If your heart is right, surely you'll be accepted. He was, God was challenging him to stop and think about how he felt. Think about what, was the, what is it that you're irritated about? Because the chances are we're talking about a man whose anger was rooted in jealousy. And if he'd have stopped and examined himself and recognized that, maybe he could have moved on. That flows into the second thing, which is self-respect and humility. If Cain was secure in his position as a son of Adam, if he knew, I'm loved by my parents, I'm loved by God, the smaller things, what happened with his offering, wouldn't be such a big deal. His perspective was all over the place. Suddenly, because he felt insecure and not right in his heart about who he was, suddenly earning favor by his offering became the biggest thing in the world. And suddenly it was, well, that's just not fair. It's not fair that my offering's been rejected. I've got the same rights as Abel to have access to favor. It's not fair that I've been prejudiced against in this way. If he was confident and secure in who he was, that wouldn't have been his reaction. Thirdly, deal with how you feel. We bottle stuff up. Sometimes we try and make out it's for good reasons. Oh, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't really feel like that, so I'm just going to bury it and pretend that I don't. Pretending that you don't is not the same as holy living. Sometimes we just have to deal with the feelings as they are by looking at why do I feel that way and by getting help from the person next to us in the stack, which is why we're in the stack. I'll come back to that in a minute. Finally, forgiving, don't bear grudges. Who loves forgiving people? Really? I was going to say, 
because I'll start giving you opportunity for that if you like it so much. <laughs> it's not always an easy thing to forgive. Forgiving isn't the same as disregarding wrongdoing. Forgiving isn't saying, well, someone's done something wrong, so that doesn't matter because the most important thing is I'm a Christian, I should forgive whatever happens. It's not a glib, superficial thing. Forgiving is where we make a decision, not just based on feelings, but based on what we know to be right, that in the sight of God, we are going to forgive someone who's done wrong, even if they haven't repented and changed their ways, because we know that forgiving them is right. Forgiving them doesn't necessarily make any difference to them. It does to us because it stops us from being ruled by resentment and holding grudges and being swamped in bitterness. And it's much easier to say and talk about it than it is to do it. Again, all these four things are very difficult to do without help. Firstly, the help comes when we pray and say, Lord, help me to forgive, help me to examine myself, do all those things but we also need people alongside us. So the final thing I'm gonna address is summed up in Micah 6, 8. Again, God speaking. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We need to guard our hearts. We need to understand that the main, the primary expression of a godly heart is a godly character. And that that flows from our heart. It's, it's that condition of our heart that enables us to walk closely with God. And when we talk about offering our hearts to God, that is all about allowing God to make our hearts what he wants them to be. But this walking humbly Keep in mind the visual picture of that stack of four shuffling along. Walking humbly, we want to stride out. We want to run ahead. We want to look good. But somehow God puts us in mission teams, in transformation labs, in worship groups, where we're together with people, in families, and we can't run and go off and look good but we find ourselves shuffling along with people, each of us with different issues, each of us with different things, each of us needing to learn what it is to be dependent upon brothers and sisters around you so that when you're struggling to forgive, you can ask someone, look, I've really got trouble with this. Can you pray with me and help me forgive? If you've got a wrong perspective and stuff's really getting on top of you and you're thinking, I, I don't know what's the right course of action, that person next to you in the stack that you're close enough to, you can pray with them. You can tap them on the shoulder because they're not 50 yards away. They're close enough for you to be able to communicate with. We need to be that close. We need to be shuffling close. So, I said I would finish with the scripture that I started with. I've told you that you need to be shuffling along closely. I've told you that you need to be toothpaste, not Savlon. Please try and remember, not just the illustrations, because there's nothing worse than halfway through the week saying, thinking, why do I want to be toothpaste? It's so when you're squeezed, and life will surely squeeze you as it always does, the right stuff comes out. 
and the right stuff comes out when it's in there in the first place and one of the ways of ensuring and maintaining that right stuff being in your heart is being in a shuffling close group of people who have got the same heart or on the same mission looking to reach out to Jesus and for Jesus in the same way and then we can shuffle along in our toothpasty success together. Leviticus 26.12, again, it's God speaking, just a reminder. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. That's us together, shuffling along as his people together. Thank you very much for listening.